Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called a man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I, I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Steve Miller, for reading our lesson this morning. It's always good to hear you read uh, the word. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Jeff uh, and to all of our praise team for leading us. What a beautiful morning of worship and how good it is to be back in the routine of worship together with the school year having started. And just to be in worship and praise with all of you means so much uh, to us to be here. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that we started a series of sermons, 10 weeks, on the book of Genesis. And let me just give you a little reminder. The word Genesis in the Hebrew language is bereshith, which literally means beginnings or origins. And we broke down the book of Genesis, which functions as sort of a prologue to the Torah, with the first five books of the Bible, we broke it down into two sections, and we're going to be looking at both of those sections. The first section, the first 11 chapters, has to do with the primeval beginnings, the creation, the origin of sin, which we'll talk about today, sibling rivalry next week, the flood, the rainbow, the Tower of Babel. These are primeval beginnings. The second section that stretches through Genesis 12 through 50 has to do with the ethnic origins of Israel, the ancestral narratives that began with Abraham and Sarah in chapter 12, the promised son whose name is Isaac, Isaac's twins that struggle in the womb, Jacob and Esau, and finally Joseph and the 12 sons of Israel. And so we'll be looking at these two halves, five weeks each in the book of Genesis. We started last week with Genesis 1, which is a creation poem. 
And we said that there are some truths that are so transcendent and so sublime that it requires poetry to describe it. And since none of us were there in the beginning when God created all that is, it requires this beautiful poetry, this beautiful lyric that reminds us that creation itself, get this, is an act of speech. We know that because Genesis 1 says, God said, let there be, and poof, there it was. He didn't say there must be. This is not the language of coercion. It's the language of invitation. Let there be, and there was. God speaks, and it happens. Psalm 33 is one of those creation psalms where it sings these words, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all their starry hosts simply by the breath of his mouth. It's an act of speech. That means that language is important. Language is creative. Language can be constructive and destructive. And then we noted that after each day of creation, these are not 24-7 days, they're eras or epochs, that at the end of each day, at the conclusion, that God affirms the work of God's hands. The first affirmation of faith, three words, it is what? Good. After each day, it is good, which I think betrays to us the fact that the native language of creation is praise. We are created, designed in the image of God in order to praise God. That's the language of affirmation. And Lord knows we could use some of that in the 21st century because we've become pretty darn fluent in the language of criticism. We said that language, I think it was Lily Tomlin who said language was created because of our need to complain. We need the affirmation. That's the native tongue of those made in the image of God, which by the way is all of you. But God reserved his highest praise, we said, for day six. When God shaped out of the Tennessee dirt a human being and breathed his breath into it, and he made you, and he said, this is very good. This is my masterpiece. I have outdone myself today. This is a very high view of humanity. The psalmist, again, sings a song about this, a creation song, Psalm chapter 8, where he asks a question and then answers it. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou dost visit him? Thou hast made him a little, listen, thou hast made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. What that means is you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are not an oops because God doesn't make junk. You are the crowning touch of creation. These babies that we initiated into the family of God, every time we baptize a child, it renews, it renews our affirmation of faith. It is very good. This is God's best. You remember the Westminster Confession? I know we're Methodist. This Presbyterian Confession, beautiful, which says that the chief purpose of humankind is to worship God and to glorify God forever. That's your why. That's the reason 
for our being. And when you know what your why is, you can bear almost any how in life. That was last week. After the poem in chapter 1, chapter 2, which occurs, Steve, immediately before you, you read what you read, there is a more intense view, a more intense reflection on human destiny, on what it means to be human. And God, in God's infinite wisdom, gives to humankind three things, vocation, permission, and prohibition. Vocation, he gives humankind this job to till the garden, to keep the garden. You remember God had given us dominion. That doesn't give us permission to dominate the environment, but to caretake for it. We're stewards. We're trustees to take care of creation. That's the vocation. And then there's the permission. God gives the freedom to this couple, to the honeymooners, to enjoy all the fruit in the garden. It's all you can eat in Eden. Which, by the way, the word Eden in Hebrew, you know what it means? Delight. And then there's one prohibition. Vocation, permission, and prohibition. There is one tree that is off limits. Contrary to popular thought, freedom is not found in the absence of restraint. There is one tree that is off limits. Chapter 2, verse 16 gives God's specific word concerning this tree. We don't know the character of the tree. We simply know the purpose. It is a boundary. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, says God, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. Now, I want to suggest to you that having considered the purpose of humanity, we're going to talk for a moment about the problem with humanity. It is in this prohibition that we see this sticky wicket that happens in the text. Now, the scene begins, this is really unusual. The scene begins with a talking snake. He is described as more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had created. Other translations say, not crafty, but wily, shrewd, sly, deceitful. And you see that in the very beginning, verse 1, because the serpent with these honeymooners leads with a question, verse 1. Did God really say you couldn't have any of the fruit in the garden? I noticed how Steve read it. Steve, I think that's exactly the way the serpent said it. I'm a little curious as to how you know that, but that's another issue. (laughs) Did God really say you couldn't have any? What's he doing? He's planting a seed of doubt. He's using a tool that sometimes we use in conversation when we want to speak in a disparaging way of someone. We use what they call innuendo. That's a veiled remark that sort of casts expersions that is intended to discredit and defame someone's character. Now, this point, at this point, when I hear this, I wonder if the serpent is not a lawyer maybe in his first profession. What you also notice is that this is the first, get this, theological talk in the Bible. Now, here's the danger about theology. Theological talk is not just speech to God or with God. That's prayer. Theological talk is speech about God, and sometimes we talk about God as if God isn't even here. I've noticed that sometimes theology 
is more about avoiding God's claims than obeying God's claims. I mean, I went to seminary for a master's in divinity for three years and then got a doctorate. I can just about theologize and rationalize my way out of many of God's claims. So at this point, I think, well, now the serpent sounds more like a theologian than a lawyer. The innuendo of the serpent includes a misquote. You get that? Did God really say you couldn't have any of the fruit? You think for one moment that the serpent misunderstood or didn't know what God said he knew. But at this point, what he's doing, and you've heard this voice before, and so have I, he's twisting the word. He's distorting the truth. He's misrepresenting God. And now I'm wondering if the serpent isn't a journalist. All of this to say that the serpent can appear in any form. In fact, did you know that the first place that Jesus encountered evil was in the synagogue? He encountered Satan in the synagogue who must have gone to church as a little devil in vacation church school. Misquoting, misrepresenting. And notice it's working because watch Eve's response. It too is a misquote. Well, we can eat from the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. God didn't say anything about touching. So what's happening here in the confusion, and the serpent is the author of confusion, is now they're misquoting, they're adding, they're innuendoing, and it's working. And so at this point, the serpent goes for the jugular. At this point, there's no more innuendo. The serpent is now going to challenge the character of God in a full frontal attack. You will not certainly die, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God, knowing good from evil. No more innuendo. This is a direct challenge to the authority and the integrity of God, as if to say, and you've heard this voice, God is holding out on you. You don't need to do what God says. God can't be trusted. It's the oldest trick in the book. The one tree forbidden begins to appear to the couple as though it's the only fruit worth eating. Why is it that the one thing that is prohibited becomes the one thing that is necessary? The one thing that I can't or shouldn't have becomes the delight to our eyes. This is our story, and it's kind of embarrassing. That the boundary of God begins to look more like a barrier to my personal freedom and autonomy. Now, it starts early. I don't have to tell you parents this. It starts early. When you say to the child, don't touch the stove, what does he do? Moves his hand above the burners, gets real close, actually touches it sometimes because he figures if you said not to do it, there must be something to it. He can't help it. He gets absorbed in the stove. I don't know why it is, but it's true, and I've raised two beautiful humans, that the word no sounds more like an invitation than a restriction. You all know this is true. 
So that in the mind of a seven-year-old, when you say don't eat the cookie, that translates in his mind, must eat cookie. I mean, there is a reason that we call the third year of our existence the terrible twos. Jerry Seinfeld said having a two-year-old is like having a blender without a lid. (laughs) Now, I know how it is. I'm a psych major, and so I know how to use, I was taught to use reverse psychology. In other words, that you motivate a person to do something by telling them to do the opposite. It doesn't work. Eat the cookie. They eat the cookie. (laughs) Don't eat the cookie. They eat the cookie. It doesn't work. I remember when our children were young, they were like, Haley was maybe six, seven, Andrew three years older. And, and, you know, they were the sibling rivalry. We're going to talk about that next week, Cain and Abel, uh, the origin of that. I mean, it still happens even when you get in your 40s and 50s sometimes, God forgive us. But they were, you know, they get into it, scraps. And Haley had gotten into a bad habit of scratching and pinching and things like that and sometimes biting. And so we didn't, we were trying to figure out how could we help her not to do that. And so what we did, we went on a full frontal attack with her and decided that what she loved the best, if she did that, she would not be able to do. And what she loved the best was we had a baby next door named James, little James. And so whenever she got on the borderline of breaking the barrier, we would say, honey, no James. You're not going to see James today if you do that. And we've told you now, if you do that, no James. And it usually would, you know, get her fixed up. Well, one morning, Sharon and I in the kitchen, and we're hearing, I mean, it's just, it's chaos. And we're hearing the yelling and the screaming. And so here comes our children into the kitchen. Andrew is running from his sister. He's a big boy, three years older. He's screaming. She's after him like this. And Andrew comes in the kitchen at the top of his voice. He said, Mom, Dad, say no James. Say no James. As soon as we did it, she's well. But it doesn't always work out that way. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and listen, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, there's a clue right here about the essence of temptation. The restricted fruit is the most enticing, and we begin to think that partaking of it gives us wisdom, that doing that which is forbidden actually becomes enlightenment. And that's what they wanted. Parker Palmer has written in his book, To Know and Be Known, that what Adam and Eve wanted and what we sometimes want in our humanity in our knowledge is that we want to eliminate mystery and put ourselves in charge at the driver's wheel. That sometimes what we really want is a human knowledge that excludes the creator from God's own creation. And the essence of this temptation is that we will become God for ourselves. Who needs God? that we will not only become like God, but that we will ascertain an alternative wisdom outside of God's word, God's will, and God's way. But there is no such wisdom. 
Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, wisdom begins with what? Fear of the Lord. And that Hebrew word fear, it's not phobos, phobia. It's not that kind of trembling, kind of phobic stuff. It means reverence. It means obedience. It means devotion. Wisdom begins with obedience. But we test the limits to find out ourselves if God is really trustworthy. And here's the beautiful thing about God. God, in his sovereign love, allows us the freedom to do just that, to go our own way. You know why? Because you cannot coerce obedience. You cannot coerce love. You can do it while the children are small. I remember when I was just a boy, I obeyed my father because I was scared of him. But when I got to be 16 and 17, I wasn't afraid of him anymore. I didn't want to disappoint him because I loved him. And I tell you, obedience born of love rather than fear will change your life. It's clear to us in this text that we are accountable to God whether we choose to be or not. Let me give you an example. You can disagree with the law of gravity all you want, but you will be accountable to the law of gravity whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. And I think of this all the time. Whether or not folk believe in God, here's the miracle. God believes in you. (laughs) He believes in me. He made us He created us. He sustains us. I want you to notice something about this. This is really peculiar. I had never noticed this before. Notice before the fall ever happened, before the transgression ever happened, Genesis 2 verse 25 says that the couple was naked and unashamed. And then in chapter 3, after the fall, they are naked and ashamed. What? What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's not a physical comment. It's more of a spiritual comment. Before they violated God's word, they had nothing to hide. They were naked and unashamed. In other words, life was transparent. There was communication. It was open. But after the transgression, that's when the cover-up begins. This is our story, friends. This is when they become so afraid for their own skin that all they can do is hide from God as if we could. (laughs) And naked and unashamed becomes naked and ashamed, alienated, and then comes accountability. Did you know that accountability is an act of love? It's not punitive. It's love. Did you know that discipline is love? Did you know that a lack of discipline is a lack of love? And so God, in his love, comes calling in the garden. I love this part. In the cool of the day, God's taking his afternoon stroll, and nobody's out there. Adam, where'd you go? As if God doesn't know. And Adam says, well, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I'm naked, and I hid from you. And God said, who, wait, wait, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? And typical male, he says, it was her. (laughs) It was the woman. 
In fact, Adam doesn't just blame his wife. He blames God. It was the woman you gave to me. Now, ladies, please don't get high and mighty because you all didn't fare much better. God comes to Eve. Eve, what have you done? And she said, talk to the snake. Aren't you glad that nobody did it? Nobody ever does it. That's our story. The two recurring phrases that I have heard as a parent are these. It wasn't me and don't tell mom. I mean, my kids learned it from me, and I learned it from my father, who learned it from his father, who learned it from his father, who learned it from his father. I was reading the other day in a psychological guide the difference between neurosis and character disorder. This is interesting. You know what it is? When you suffer from neurosis, you blame yourself for everything. When you suffer from a character disorder, you blame everybody but yourself for everything. Sound familiar? I think sometimes sin is a character disorder. Shannon Alder, who is a relational guru, author, writer, says, and I quote, people that have trust issues, and this is all of us, people that have trust issues sometimes need to look in the mirror. And there we may discover that the one person that will betray us the most is looking directly at us. The real problem in Genesis 3, you know what it is? I trust the creature more than the creator. I trust more the creature comforts of life than I do the creator's commands of life. And when I do that, I begin to look and sound a little bit more like a serpent than the Savior. And I find that I'm the one with the hidden agendas. And I'm the one who hides from the truth. And I'm the one who prefers the darkness to the light. And we wind up naked and ashamed. But the story doesn't end there. Hang with me one more minute. The story ends on a very surprising note. Though they're naked and ashamed, God comes to their defense in chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to this. But the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Oh, friends, there's gospel in that verse. Did you know in the Hebrew language, the word naked, it means defenseless, so that when we are naked and ashamed and disobedient and defenseless in our hiding, God himself comes to our defense and in his infinite grace and mercy clothes us. With what? With leaves? No, they tried that. They tried the fig leaves. They tried to deceive and cover up, didn't work. I'm sure before the fig leaves that Eve tried the oak leaves and the elm leaves first, but it just didn't look good. It's garments of skin. In other words, something had to die for God to clothe them. Does that ring a bell? Herein is a foretaste of the gospel because in the fullness of time, check this out, a new Adam is going to come in the fullness of time who will wrap himself in human flesh. He will confront 
the, the serpent, he will resist the tempter by remaining faithful to God's Word, and he will take the curse on himself, and he will face another tree, but not of knowledge and wisdom, but of death and sacrifice, the tree of Calvary. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, will give his own skin for my sin and for yours and clothe us in mercy. Oh, I need that fruit. Clothe us in grace so that we may then, in spite of our nakedness and shame, rediscover our purpose and our destiny as sons and daughters, not of a serpent, but of a creator God, so that we can live out our why. Because once you have found your why, you can bear any how that you ever face. I call that the gospel of Genesis. It's in the book. It's a gift. Thanks be to God. Amen.